The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. And welcome back to the Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by maestro Gary Thorwedo. Welcome, Thank maestro. You. So good to have you here. As we record, you're in the midst of a run of Deflator Mouse with Utah Opera. It's the final production of our 40th anniversary season. It's great to have you back. Yes, thank you. I'm so happy to be back here. I love Utah opera. I love Utah and I love Salt Lake City. It's um, a wonderful experience and it's a great cast you've assembled here and the symphony is so beautiful and so it's been a wonderful experience. We're really having a party. Well, I've been enjoying watching the way all of the artists have been responding to you. It's been great to have you return a second time. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your career and you know how you got here, not to, not to Deflator Mouse, but to this point in your life. And I know that there's no such thing as an opera-only conductor, but people do tend to specialize. Yes. And I wonder, in your case, has the path to the podium is it different for someone with a career like yours than it would be for, say, a, somebody who's just done purely symphony work all of their life? I mean, what are the jobs you have before you ever get to see the podium as an opera specialist? Well, I'm a young conductor, kind of. Mm-hmm. I came to conducting probably later in my career. I had been a pianist uh-huh. and a collaborative pianist. I played for a lot of wonderful singers. Then I began playing for opera companies. I played regularly in Santa Fe, in Boston for opera companies. Then I fell into chorus mastering, and I had worked at the Handel and Haydn Society as the associate conductor there. So it was a natural fit. I I loved um, working with groups of people. And then at a certain point, you just begin conducting rehearsals. And then at a certain point, a conductor doesn't show up. And that is a wonderful stepping stone into another career. So I, I feel my path has been one that opened up for me. That was not one that I pursued actively, but was one that was presented to me, and I've enjoyed it very much. But it is different probably from someone who, from a very early age, wanted to be a conductor and was interested in the symphonic repertoire. And I think that's the big difference. Um, The repertoires are so huge, and the demands on the conductor are so different in opera and in the symphonic repertoire. In opera, you're, you're managing a lot of different people at the same time. And there's also this spatial thing that you have to deal with. Um, the last people in the chorus can be 100 feet away. Certainly. And, and doing something rather rambunctious at the time you need them to be paying attention to you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Is your path, do you think, common for people in in your sort of part of the profession? I mean, is this this idea of coming up as a as a rehearsal pianist or a coach or a chorus master? Is that a common path? Do you think? I think it's a very traditional path, mm-hmm. especially in Europe. Yeah, uh, George Schulte sure. did that path. Sure, Abado, um, other Tony Papano, uh-huh. other wonderful conductors that conduct opera that that is a wonderful path you you kind of bore from within and you understand operas are made by families right and i read a wonderful book about mozart recently and about who performed mozart for mozart 
Well, the opera company in Prague, they were all related to each other. It was a husband and wife that ran the opera company, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. her sister that was the other prima donna, there sure. was a brother-in-law involved. It was literally a family. And there's a family here in Utah. For sure. Um, yes, that it was founded by uh, the Peterson family. family absolutely. Yes. Two of them still working for the company. Yes. Yeah. And and now you have the Macbeth family that has Another taken great over. point. Yes, yes. Great point. So it's and and we who work in opera, um, we are a family. Right. And we come together. It's like an extended family. Right. And, we have reunions, regular reunions. We've so. talked about that on the show a little bit, how different the opera world is from the symphony world. And since I'm lucky enough to work for a company that has both art forms, yes. I get to experience this on a regular basis. But symphony engagements are fleeting. They happen over the course of a week, and then you close the book and start a new one the following day. But opera engagements, you really settle into something yes. over a longer yes. period of time. Okay, so... That's your path. You're an established conductor. You're, you say that you're young, but I, I know well, career-wise you're... No, young in the game. Young in the game. Young in the game, right. Um, right. <laughs> so I wonder, like, how would you describe your repertoire profile? What are you known for? And I'm curious if there are certain composers or works outside of your normal range that you really want to tackle. Well, it's been a kind of roller coaster. I studied with a wonderful pianist, George Bullett, who was mm -hmm. a big Liszt virtuoso. Mm -hmm. And that was a real humbling experience because he was so gifted. But two things. He taught me in a very traditional way. I played a lot of Bach and Haydn and Mozart for him. And he was in love with the vocal repertoire. Mm. Well, he played all these big Liszt transcriptions. Sure. And... He knew opera backwards and forwards, and it was he who came to a recital that I played for a singer who said, why don't you play like this when you play for me? <laughs> and we realized that I was interested in collaborating. I wanted to be part of a team. Interesting. And not sit in a room practicing scales and... The muse was something you shared with other artists. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And he got on uh, he got on the bandwagon right away yeah. and started directing. And he actually said, you know, I think you will be a conductor down the path. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Maybe that was I wasn't a good enough pianist, and he <laughs> thought, um, well. We'll find another career. For it's a you, nice parachute, though, if you have to jump <laughs> <laughs> the conducting life. But he um, he was great. So I got a taste of that repertoire. Sure. And then when I went to Boston, I needed a job, and I got a job working for the Handel and Haydn Society, and it was conducted then by Tom Dunn, who was a, a Handel and a Bach scholar, and. He was terrific because mm -hmm. I knew nothing about early music. Sure. And he took me under his wing, and I became the keyboardist for them, and I learned about continuo playing. And when I actually started my conducting career, I did a lot of early music. And I think people saw me as kind of an early music conductor, but, of course, I had this hidden passion for romantic repertoire. And then I went to City Opera. I conducted at Canadian Opera Company mm -hmm. for a while. I did a lot of Baroque works there. And then at City Opera, I was a staff conductor there. And I probably conducted 
40 Carmens um, during uh, my tenure there sure, and Borans sure. and the repertoire. You conduct what they need somebody to conduct. Of course. And I loved that. I loved working in an opera house where you did Carmen and Bohème and Butterfly every season mm -hmm. and you saw different conductors right. take over these pieces. And, and it can really change the experience. Oh, it was it yeah. was incredible. Yeah. And what a learning experience and a kind of experience where you understand that these great works, these masterpieces, can become so different when they're viewed by different sure. wonderful sure. conductors. It's it, it, it's a, it's it says something about in, in the interpretive part of what we do. Yes, and indeed. how important that is. Indeed. Well, why do you think when I read about you online, people often describe you as an early music guy, a Handel, Haydn, Mozart yes, guy? I mean, is exactly. that is that something that, given your background, that's probably not entirely a fair way to describe you because your your repertoire is much broader. I I like to think, and I say this all the time. I I work a lot with young artists. I love to turn young artists on to um, early music. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My next project is uh, Coronation of Popea oh, yeah. at Cincinnati right, Opera. Right. And then in the fall, I'm going to the Shepherd School in Houston, right. and we're doing La Calisto by Cavalli. I feel these early recitative operas, it, it, there's the nut, there's the seed of yes. every later operatic form. So if you can do these early pieces and understand what makes them tick, mm -hmm. you can do anything. Yeah. Um, because Wagner's in there, Stravinsky's in there. I talked to your wonderful symphony here um, during Flatermouse about Monteverdi tempo relationships applying to um, Flatermouse because Flatermouse is all dances. Sure. But lots of times they kind of link up mm -hmm. and you have to figure out how to get from one to the other without right. tripping um, on the way. Yeah. I find it interesting that you approach that early repertoire as kind of a proto-language for, for, for finding fluency with, with, with later work. And, That's and a really fascinating way to look at it. Verdi said, if you want to learn something new, look to the past. Yeah, of course. And Brahms, he, he also he had one of the biggest collections of early music manuscripts. Yeah. And last year at Opera Philadelphia, I did Compatimento mm -hmm. di Clorinda in Pancaredi by Monteverdi. Mm -hmm. and they paired it with a new piece by Lembit Beecher, another I um, saw this yeah it was piece. this war stories yes. thing that you did war yeah. stories yeah and his piece was I have no stories to tell mm -hmm. which was um devastating sure and but a contemporary view of war at PTSD uh-huh and we used early instruments but it was a completely contemporary language yeah and I had the best time and so did the players because you were continually growing as artists, and the repertoire is growing. Yeah, and this is such an exciting time. It really is for for music and for opera. Opera has a way of addressing contemporary issues that's much more direct and instantly relatable 
than the symphony can, I, I feel. I mean, it's the, it's the second PTSD opera that I know of. We just did a long walk here last yes. year with Danny Belcher, yes. who's, who's with you this week. And, I mean, that experience was incredibly potent. And like I yes. said, very immediate in terms yes. of your ability to respond to it as content and context. There's a question I want to ask you later about, about opera subjects, but I don't want to jump ahead. I, we'll get there in a moment. But I do have a question for you about your relationship to singers because we talked about how that unlocked some things for you. Certainly it showed something to your teacher about you. Um, and this is kind of a long road to get to this question. I hope there's something in there for you. But I watched an interview that you did in Seattle a few years back, and I think you were there doing a Messiah, if I'm not mistaken. And you commented on how opera singers have so much non-musical stuff to think about while they're right. on stage, blocking and acting and the costumes and the wigs and everything else they have to do. And that you sometimes wished that they could just stand and sing the way they do in, in an oratorio. And in fact, I think I remember you saying in the interview, what's wrong with, you know, it's concert opera. And I wonder where oh, that, dear. where does that feeling come from? And, and does it impact the way you approach singers now, especially when you're working on a really intensively staged production? What does it, what does it all mean? I think I was trying to be ironic. And, <laughs> and, um, a couple of things. Well, I love opera. Of course. And I love being in the room. Right. And you said, you know, in the concert world, you're there for a week, maybe, at yeah. the most. Yeah. But I find in the opera business, a lot of the more interesting musical decisions the more subtle musical decisions happen in the rehearsal rooms right. during the staging. Sure, That's when the drama and the music really come together. Mm -hmm. And if the conductor isn't there kind of paying attention and putting in his two cents and putting in his oar, mm -hmm. um, you're going to miss a lot of opportunities, sure. wonderful opportunities. Yeah. Now... It is true, singers have a lot to do. And I don't always know, I think they're like fighter pilots. I don't know how they keep flying the plane straight, keep the music going yeah. absolutely accurately. And like in Flatermouse, do all these crazy dances right. and joking around. And Flatermouse is an interesting opera because almost everybody is lying. Nobody is really telling the truth. You might be describing opera in general. <laughs> well, a little bit, yeah. a little bit, or our world in well, general. Well, certainly. wonderfully talented artists do that. Mm -hmm. And Kyle Lang, the the wonderful director of our Plater Mouse, I had a book on operetta, and I would open it up to a page of an old-fashioned production where the chorus all stood in two rows sure. behind the principal of course. singers. Of course. And I would say, Kyle, if you're interested in some ideas for stagings, <laughs> how about this? Everybody in rows, I like that. Yeah. Um, You'll make a messiah out of this flater mouse yet. <laughs> but, of course, I realize that that's not what we're supposed to do. Not and these days. Not these days. Yeah. And I also realize that the singers we have have today are so well trained absolutely they they can do it yeah the acting chops that the singers have now it's really impressive and you you mentioned the long walk right which which i saw it's 
premiere mm-hmm. in Saratoga, mm-hmm. and then I saw it again here. Yeah. The things they had Danny Belcher do and... Um, that whole opening sequence where he runs in place for about 15 yeah. minutes yeah. and sings, one of the most impressive things I've ever seen on the yeah. opera stage. Yeah. Talk about distraction, if you, <laughs> if, if you let it be. Yes. I mean, I bet singers appreciate that you're aware of how much they're going through on stage. I, I bet they see that. Do you ever talk about it with them? Do you ever, does this understanding is just something that's implied or do you, do you let them in on your, your sensitivity to their plight? I mean. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I love singers. Of course. Um, I tell young conductors um, that you're going to, if you conduct opera, you're going to spend a great deal of your time looking at mouths and diaphragms. Of course. Because you're going to be following their diction, Mm -hmm. and you're going to be watching them breathe. Right. And trying to coordinate your instincts with their needs and instincts. And when you find that sweet spot where you're all working together, it's truly like a dance. It's your, your... respecting their needs and they're inspiring you yeah so in a way i don't see it as a limitation as much as kind of an inspiration it's it's exciting Uh, well a dance like you said where your partner is sometimes 50 feet away i mean just a really really a really strangely remotely intimate experience i'm sure yes um we talked a minute ago about um, I was I was excited about the idea of subjects, and anytime I've been able to get an opera person on this show, I've been I've I've been keen to ask the question: Is there a subject out there, real or imagined, historical, contemporary, anything that you think needs to be made into an opera? And a lot of people are saying what you are what you think they might be saying these days. But is there something that it hasn't been put on stage yet that you think just has to be? First of all, I'm overjoyed at this this abundance of new opera. Yeah, I mean, me too. it is so exciting. Yeah. And and are they all good? Probably not. But we're, the, the year that Flatermouse was written, was every opera fabulous? No. Of course not. And um, But that's what you need. Mm-hmm. You need a lot of activity. Right. And a lot of these new pieces are terrific. Yeah. One of the things so I've always felt, being of a, a slightly older generation, I lived through a period in time where we had a lot of operas written that were not very attractive. Mm -hmm. They were attracted to other composers, maybe, and to a certain um, small audience, esoteric. But the general public was not attracted to them. You're talking about mid-century academic. Absolutely. Yeah, right. um, Post-expressionism. Exactly, right. Um, the kind of stuff you and I love, but doesn't probably reach a wider audience. Yes, yeah. indeed. Right. Um, I worked for the, I was chorus master at the Santa Fe Opera for, I think, what seemed like 500 years. <laughs> and um, Just shy. <laughs> just shy. <laughs> and we um, did some operas there that I worked on all summer long. And at the end of the summer, had you asked me what it was about, sure. I couldn't have told you. Right. And right. some of them were interesting, mm-hmm. and they inspired me in a way wow, this is really hard. How are we going to learn this? But as an audience member, I remember more than one night seeing the audience just drift out the door. Sure. Just disconnect and walk away. Disconnect. And that is so wrong. Yeah. And when I think of Mozart and Puccini and Verdi, they set operas to the the hottest property around. Mm -hmm. And 
I think one of the problems in that earlier generation that I saw was they were not going after popular properties. Right. They were going after the most obscure esoteric piece they could find. Interesting. And now I think that's shifted sure. in that we're getting things that are more interesting uh-huh. to the audience. Pop culture references. Pop culture. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I don't know. I'm, am, am, am I ready for a Roseanne opera? <laughs> uh, are we ready for a Black Panther opera? Wow. Because... I carry the name of Thor. Are I'm, we ready for an Avengers opera? I would say no to the first one, yes to the next two. Okay. okay. <laughs> That's my personal okay. choice, Maestro. Well, there you are. There you are. I'm those all are, for it. Those are very interesting observations, and I, I love the idea of a Marvel opera. Someone will do that. Yes, I of guarantee course. you someone will. Of course. Of course. We have a traditional question on the podcast, and I've warned you about this, yes. so I know you've been able to give it a little thought. And it's because of our name, and it's because that most of the people we talk to spend a lot of time time in theaters where there can be hauntings. So I'm wondering, Maestro, if you've ever seen a ghost, do you have a ghost story to tell us? Give us some details. Well, I maybe saw a ghost Mm -hmm. once. When I was in Boston, um, the Handel and Haydn Society had a a long relationship with the Boston Athenaeum, which was a library and club on Beacon Hill. Mm. And one day I was racing to a rehearsal there And I had never been there before. And I got there, and the porter let me in the front door. And I went down a hallway, which I thought was the way to the music room. And I got to the end of the room, and it was kind of a dead end. And there was a lady, all dressed in black, with a black veil. And I think it's jet, or, you know, everything was kind of sparkling. Uh And she had a cane. And I said, oh, excuse me, I'm looking for the music room. And she said, oh, on the upper floor. (laughs) And so I went up the stairway to the upper floor. Uh And I said, "Um, I'm sorry I'm late. I'm sorry I'm late. The lady sent me upstairs. What lady? You're kidding. (laughs) So... I wow. don't know. Did she look like she could have been out of time, out of place? She I'm, was definitely yeah, dressed yeah. from a different era. Wow. But this was the 70s, yeah. and it was Boston, and it was Beacon Hill. <laughs> so she so, could have been on her way to a party. Yes, exactly. So I, let's, let's you and I agree this was a ghost. I okay, think it makes a much better good, story. Good. You and I also, the one thing we have in common is we love movies, and I know you wanted to yes. talk a little bit about a movie Oh, Ghost I story love too. movies. Yeah. I love old movies, classic movies. And one of my favorites is The Uninvited, mm-hmm. which is a ghost movie. The, the book is by Dorothy McArdle, an Irish writer, who's written a couple of other ghost stories. And it's the movie is about a musician and his sister that stumble on a deserted man. Uh-huh. Of, of course, course. <laughs> of course. And they fall in love with it and uh-huh. they buy it. Yes. And it's beautiful except for one room where <laughs> he has made it his music studio. Uh-huh. But whenever he sits down to compose, whatever he plays turns into a horribly sad song. Interesting. And they hear weeping yeah. in the night. Yeah. And the cold chills that come at certain times. And the daughter of the original owner of the house shows up and wants 
to be invited in, but her very stern grandfather says, absolutely not. So you know immediately that um, something is going on with the house, and the house has a spirit that is trying to harm this young girl. And I can't tell you more. No, please. um, We don't want to spoil. Yes, then I would spoil the end of the movie. But because he's a composer, he writes this very beautiful piece for this young girl Mm -hmm. who, of course, he falls in love with. And Ray Milland plays the composer, and he writes this piece, which is actually by the composer Victor Young, um, called Stella by Starlight. Let's listen to a little bit of that, actually. The song a robin sings Through years of endless spring the murmur of a brook at even tide. Great stuff. Great. Great. Yeah. Great and it stuff. became a jazz standard. Oscar Peterson, Ella Fitzgerald, yeah. Frank Sinatra, everybody has had a go at it. Yeah. So it's one of my favorite movies and a great ghost story. I think it's really interesting, Maestro, that you chose a movie and a story that both involve a music room, a haunted music yes, room. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I isn't think it's it? really well, and you heard it here, folks. Don't watch the next Saw movie. Go find the uninvited. <laughs> watch a classic film instead, please. Well, it's been a real pleasure to have you with us, Maestro Wado. Oh, and you. I'm looking forward, as we record, I'm going to see Flatermouse tonight. Yay. So I'll be in the audience enjoying your work. I hope the next time you're back in town, you join us again on the Ghost Light Podcast. And oh, thank you. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. I love these podcasts. So thank you for inviting me. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dory Eccles Foundation. 